James chapter 3, verse 2. James 3, 2. Don't stand just yet. Hope you had a good Valentine's Day this week. And if you're married, I hope you had time with your spouse. And if not, maybe this week would be a week to make up for that. We were in class today, and I asked some of the class, you know, what people did for Valentine's Day. And so, you know, one guy said, well, I made myself some steak, and I served a little bit to my wife. And I won't tell you that was Derek Butcher. So anyway, <laughs> and we were like, okay, Derek. So I said, well, you know, I bought Elizabeth some flowers from Costco, and we went to Olive Garden, and we got soup and salad, and it was really good. And, and we got water. I let her get fizzy water, so it was, <laughs> we were all good there. Well, then Paul Liskett raises his hand. And Paul says, yeah, I took Angela to Longhorn, and we got steak. And we were like, oh. And then he says, and, and then we went to Barnes and Noble, and we, we, you know, we let it settle, and we, we walked around, got some coffee there. And then I took her to Cheesecake Factory for dessert. Yeah. Then he says, and I gave her jewelry from Kendra Scott. Yeah, and we were, we were um, lots of elbows going on in the room today. Lots of elbows. And so uh, Paul won the prize today. No one else wanted to volunteer what they did after that. So I understand why. Uh, tonight I want to preach just a short thought on marriage. Um, since we're still in the spirit of, of the Valentine spirit. And, uh, and if you haven't done something special for your spouse, this would be a great week to do it since Wednesday night we were all being uh, preached at by Pastor Durrell from the book of Acts. So, all right. Let me ask you to stand if you would, and we'll read two verses from the book of James. James chapter 3, uh, verses uh, just 1 and 2 tonight. James writes, My brethren... Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, for in many things we offend all. And if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Let's pray tonight. Father, thank you for a, a great day in your house, uh, for music that's been edifying. I trust to you from the sincerity of our hearts. Uh, Lord, for the fellowship we've had tonight, and uh, Lord, just for um, the time in your word this morning, and thank you for meeting with us in, a, in just a special way today, and uh, making today a, a day that we felt your spirit and your presence and your voice. Lord, I pray as we conclude this weekend and, and this day that you'd speak to us once more, help us to find points of application that would be a help in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. James writes in chapter 3, verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters. The idea of masters is one who would stand in front of other people and assume or be designated or, or, or given the role and responsibility of teaching and preaching. And, and James is just cautioning those uh, that would be in that position. And he's also saying, hey, don't rush headlong into that. Let God put you in that position. Let Him appoint you in that role. Why? Well, because those individuals will be and are held to a higher standard by God. He, they are called by God. They're placed there by God. And there's a standard that God holds them to. Not necessarily all mankind, but, but the Lord Himself does. And it's not a position for everyone. Well, why? And he, he gives us this answer. He says, in many things, we offend all. The truth is, we're all sinners. We know that. We understand that. And we all make a lot of mistakes. 
And it doesn't take much to be a person who can cause both intentionally and unintentionally offense in the hearts and in the minds of other people. We all have this tendency to be offensive. And one of the ways that we're the most offensive is with our communication. It's with our words. And so he says, in many things we offend all. And he says, if any man offend not in, and then here's specific application, the idea of words or his, his, the, way, the things that he says and the way that he speaks. He says the same as a perfect man. If you can control your tongue, if you can control what you communicate to others, there are so many other things in life that you are going to be able to control. The power of restraint over the things that we say enables us to have control over other things. Things like our emotions, things like our appetites, things like our finances, our physical conditioning, our mental discipline, the use of our time. So once we are able to get to this position where, hey, we're in control of our tongue, Boy, there's a lot of other things, the way that that strength applies, that restraint, it helps us in so many areas of life. And perhaps there is nowhere that we show less restraint and we create more offense than in the area of our marriages. Because we speak to our spouses oftentimes in a way that we don't to other people. Over the course of our marriage, Elizabeth and I have purchased several homes. And those of you that have purchased a home before, maybe like us, the process has always been the same. You view different homes, and as you view those homes, maybe you look at the pictures online, maybe you start with Zillow, where the realtor sends you the MLS listing, or so you, you see these pictures, then you do a drive-by, you know, then you do the walkthrough. And every time you look at the home, you begin to envision what it would be like to live there. And you, and, you, and you see the pluses, and you, maybe you see some of the minuses initially, but you finally decide on one, you say, this has the most pluses, and so you buy that house, and you move in, and you settle in. And it takes a little bit of time, but you begin to see real flaws in that house that you did not see before. They were not on your plus and minus sheet. And so the last house that we purchased, it was in Claremore, and it was on an acre lot. And so we bought it in the springtime, and we were so excited. We move in all our stuff, and a few weeks later, we got some really heavy rain. And so it's raining. Well, that backyard, the, the house set in the middle of it, it didn't drain, like, ever. And so it's under several inches of water, and I'm really annoyed. And then, you know, weeks go by, and the water's still there. And it wasn't really till summer that it was gone. And then you'd go out to mow. Well, the, the ground was so saturated. You know, I would be mowing in this zero-turn 52-inch mower, and it'd get stuck in the mud. And now I'm just frustrated. I never, this wasn't, you know, something I accounted for, mowing this yard, and, and there's ruts everywhere. And I'm so frustrated by this. What's more, the neighbor right next door to us, he never mowed. He just said, fooey with it, I'm not mowing. And so I thought after, you know, months of that, I thought, I, I, I need to go mow his lawn. So I take my mower out there, start to mow his lawn. And right away, I didn't see it, but it sucked up his water hose that he had just laying all over the grass. So now I've got a mower stuck in the mud with the hose underneath it. So it takes me forever. I have to jack it up. Elizabeth has to help me. We pull the, the hose out from underneath, finish mowing his lawn, and I had to buy him a new hose. <laughs> Well, then I'm looking out there the next day, and here he comes outside in his bathrobe. 
and a pan of eggs. And he starts scraping them in his flower bed. You know, I just mowed your lawn and you're scraping eggs in your flower bed. Anybody had experiences like that? Maybe not, I don't know. But sometimes buying a home, you don't see the flaws until after you live in it. And I'm going somewhere. Getting married is kind of like buying a house. <laughs> this, my wife says this, I, I would never say this. The flaws don't show up until after you purchase it. <laughs> and then you go, oh, now what, now what did I get here? You find this person and you see all this potential. And sure, there are a few little things on your plus and minus list, but you can overlook those or you can just fix those later, just slap a coat of paint on them. <laughs> but it doesn't take long in a marriage for us to start to see things like temper and selfishness and pouting and bad habits and other real flaws that exist. So for all of those of you tonight who didn't marry the perfect spouse, and for all of those of you who aren't married, I'm going to let you in on a little secret tonight. You're not alone. All of those who are married and all of us who are married are married to imperfect spouses, and there are no exceptions. And you say, well, how do you know this? Well, because James said, for in many things we offend all. If you were to divorce or separate from your current spouse tonight and that, you know, you know, we're going to redo this. And so you get 200 potential replacement spouses and you line them up. It's a hypothetical and then there's a point behind this. And you winnow it down to 12 people. And from those, you select three finalists. These are the three you're going to marry. And for two weeks, you pray, you fast, and you get counsel. You get to know them. You talk to all of those in your life for counsel. And you're going to make the perfect choice. You're still going to end up with someone who offends you and offends in all things. People don't leave marriages because marriage is easy. Marriage isn't easy. There is an inerrant difficulty about all relationships. And some people say, well, I have a difficult marriage, and that can often just be redundant because marriages are difficult. But it is the difficulty that if we're allowed to see it this way, can make it unique and can make it worthwhile. And there's this point I want to make tonight, and it's simply this. We need to learn to embrace the difficulty in our marriages as one of God's tools that shape us and make us better people. God uses the people in our life to shape us. And there's no one he'll use more than the individual to whom you're married. When marriage isn't easy, we have to realize that beautiful things are birthed in struggle. And every parent knows this especially mothers. Giving birth to a baby isn't easy. I, I like to think of myself as a secondary sufferer when it comes to, you know, the birthing process. Like, I, you know, I, I know it's not easy for her, but I'm saying, like, this isn't easy for me either. I have to endure this too. But what you get from that process is miraculous, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And this child that the Lord gives to you 
See, the problem sometimes with our relationships and our marriages is that we have a tendency to avoid difficulty at all costs. We want to avoid it. We want the easy road. We don't want conflict. We don't want stress. We don't want discomfort. But it is always struggle that makes us stronger and builds up and strengthens us. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 49, for everyone shall be salted with fire. It means you're going to be tested. It means difficulty is going to come and it's going to be hard. And God doesn't always shield us from problems. Even when we pray and even when we ask Him to, God, would you shield me from this? Help me through this. Help this to change. Change her. Change him. Do something different here. God doesn't always do it that way. Instead, he helps us to walk through problems. He helps us to grow in them. Sometimes the answer is that we become stronger and better people. And difficulty and struggle in marriage relationships is an opportunity for us to grow. It's an opportunity for us to say, you know what, I'm going to grow in my Christian character. I'm going to excel in obedience to God, and I'm going to grow personally. You know, it's unrealistic to assume that the pledges you made to your spouse are easy to keep. Any promise that you make in a public setting insinuates it's difficult. We don't make promises for easy things. People don't make promises, I'm going to clothe myself and feed myself the rest of my life. We don't do stuff like that. Anticipating the struggle ahead, God has ordained the remedy of holding us to our word of commitment. And it is in this struggle that we often become better and nobler people. I'm going to read a a rather lengthy lengthy story, and so I want you to hold on with me for just a minute, because I think this really illustrates this point in in a thoughtful way. Mary Todd was hardly the type of woman with whom one could enjoy a quiet evening. She was, in fact, a woman of intense impulses and tremendous temper, though this, ironically enough, was some of her attraction for Abraham Lincoln. The future president called her the first aggressively brilliant feminine creature who had crossed his path. Mary's bouts of temper made retaining hired help extremely difficult. Lincoln responded by giving the girls an extra weekly dollar. After one particularly forceful eruption between Mary and a maid, Lincoln quietly patted the girl on the shoulder and said, stay with her, Maria, stay with her. He had to hold on to the help because hiring new workers with Mary's growing reputation was next to impossible. When a salesman called on the White House and was treated to Mary's fervid, fervid verbal assault, he marched right up to the Oval Office, and things were a bit different that day, and he proceeded to complain to President Lincoln about how the First Lady had treated him. Lincoln listened calmly, then stood and gently said, you can endure for 15 minutes what I have endured for 15 years. <laughs> Lincoln suffered numerous indignities at the hand of his wife, from Mary's publicly throwing coffee in his face to her, her profligate spending. In those days, presidents were not as well off as they are today, but Mary went on bizarre spending binges during one stretch, buying hundreds of pairs of gloves. On another occasion, she actually contracted with a builder to redo their house while the future president was away, without his knowledge and certainly without his frugal assent. When the Lincolns lost Willie, Mary's favorite son, the ensuing grief cracked Mrs. Lincoln's already fragile psyche. 
it became more and more difficult for her to control her hysterics. In the turmoil of his tremendous grief, losing his son, and distraction, watching his wife fall apart, Lincoln did his best to keep a crumbling nation together. Added to the sometimes bizarre pressures at home, Lincoln's political life was equally chaotic. His insistence on fighting the Civil War to the end made him so unpopular that a fellow politician scoffed at Lincoln's planned visit and addressed to Gettysburg with the words, let the dead bury the dead. Lincoln himself saw little hope for being reelected, writing in his journal that he fully expected to be a one-term president. Keep in mind that over 600,000 men perished in this increasingly unpopular and horrific conflict that Lincoln was determined to bring to a conclusion. Many perhaps, many, many, perhaps most, knew a son, brother, husband, father, uncle, or sometimes all of the above, who gave their life for, quote, Lincoln's war. The people had had enough. But Lincoln lived with this almost mystical sense that he'd been chosen by God to keep the United States together and to preserve this, this experiment called democracy. And so he fought on, changing generals, tactics, but staying on course even in the face of the public's growing disgust, ridicule, and sometimes hatred. What gives a man such tenacity? How does a man develop the character to persist, persist in the face of widespread hatred, chaos, disappointment, and tragic defeat? How does a man keep going when his home and his nation seem to be falling apart? Shortly before Lincoln left for Gettysburg, his son Tad became ill which once again intensified Mary's hysterics as she was reminded anew of the son she had lost less than two years earlier. With all the distractions at home, Lincoln was able to merely to scribble out a few notes as he left for Pennsylvania. In his highly emotional moment, Lincoln could be forgiven for delivering his words with less than powerful rhetoric. One reporter described Lincoln's delivery as a sharp, unmusical treble voice. The applause was scattered and restrained, so much so that Lincoln believed he had failed miserably. He leaned over and told a friend, it is a flat failure and the people are disappointed. But the words were true and genuine, and they were moving and powerful. And as the newspapers recorded them without Lincoln's understandable gloom coloring them, the nation was inspired as never before. The Gettysburg Address is one of the most famous speeches ever delivered on American soil, and its words would eventually be carved in stone, accompanying Lincoln into history. It may be cliche to say this, but it's still true. He shone brightest when his personal life was darkest. Okay. Here's the author's point. The connection one can make between Lincoln's marriage and his mission is not difficult. It's easy to see how a man who might quit on a difficult marriage wouldn't have the character to hold together a crumbling nation. Lincoln was virtually obsessed with saving the Union, and what better training ground than the difficult marriage that required such tenacity from him. See, we may look at Lincoln's marriage and think, wow, you know, if he had had a better marriage, what more could he have done? And the truth is, maybe it was his marriage and the character and the strength that he derived from those moments that gave him the tenacity to be the man he was and to stand in an hour of history when it could be argued we needed him most. It is the mark of mature Christianity when we can look at marital difficulty and accept it as a blessing and not resent it. When we can look at a struggle in a relationship 
surrendered to God and say, God, this isn't the path I chose. I didn't see these flaws and cracks when I bought it. But Lord, they're here and things have developed. And so, Lord, I choose to see this as a blessing from you to make me who you want me to be. And I surrender to you. See, maybe the difficult moments aren't holding us back. Maybe it's those moments that God is using in our lives to shape us and to form us into what He wants and needs us to be for both our spouses and for other people. See, this just point to the sermon title tonight. That good marriages aren't something that you find. They are something that you work for. How do we work for a good and a better marriage? And I, I would say this tonight. When the disappointments of marriage grow, when conflict becomes real, when apathy sets in, we apply virtue to our struggle. Now, let me define that. Virtue is an old word. It's not one we use much anymore. It's the idea of strength. It's the idea that we give intentional effort. We give our best effort to something. It's intentional effort we give to doing what's good and what's right. Sometimes doing good and right isn't always easy. Sometimes we're mistreated, and, and sometimes we don't feel like we're in the right mood to do good and right. And sometimes we feel sinful and carnal. But sometimes virtue just says, you know what, life's going against me, and I don't feel good, and I don't feel right now, but I'm going to apply intentional effort to doing the next right thing in my life. Because that's what character demands and what God expects from me. Intentional effort given to make right choices. Intentional effort given to respond in the right way. God, help me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond better. I'm going to have a better response with my tongue. Intentional effort given to overcome the weaknesses of sin and victimhood and self-pity that overcome us sometimes. And so James in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Because he's using the equestrian term here. Who has control of the bridle? Does the horse have control of the bridle? Well, the answer is no, that's silly. The horse is the one with the bridle. He's got the bit. He has the bridle. The rider's in control. I don't know horses real well, but I am told by horsemen that a good horse doesn't even respond necessarily to the bit. It's just a, a slap of the rein. They feel the rein on their neck and they'll turn. They feel the intent of the rider and they'll move forward or they'll stop. That's the rider's responsibility to be in control. Who has control of the tongue? Your body or your mind? And that's what he's saying. Do you have control of your tongue or does your body have control of your tongue? And the answer is, you do. You have control of your tongue. And that's what James is saying. You're the one that is in control of the things you say. You're the one in control of your responses and how you process events. You're the one in control of whether or not you give intentional effort to doing good and right to your spouse. You're always in the driver's seat. You are the architect 
of your home and your marriage. In our adult classes, I think some of them were discussing Noah today and the ark, and some will be next week. And today we were. And, and here's Noah, and God says, build an ark. What if Noah didn't give his best effort? God says, look, tough times are coming, Noah. Rain's going to fall. The foundations of the earth, they're going to break up. Water's coming. There's going to be feet of water over the highest peak. Like, I'm going to wipe out everything. But it was hundreds of years in the future. I mean, it's decades in the future. And what if Noah didn't give his best effort to the boat? What if he didn't use the best pitch? What if he cut some corners? What if he had a few days where he just got lazy and didn't want to worry about it? The survival of his family, the survival of the future lay in the foundation and the vessel in which he was building. And and don't you know, dads and moms, that you're building something. Like tough times are coming and your kids are watching. They have to live in what you make. They have to endure in that. You're building the ark of your home. In marriage, it's a gift. Yes, it's precious, but it's also a project. It's a task to accomplish. It's, 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 this, is, this is a relationship, but it's a relationship that's worth giving my very best effort to because we're going to eternity with this thing. There's a finish line in sight. So I want to challenge you tonight. Work through difficult moments. Don't give up on them. Don't turn your back on them. Build something with what you've been given. When James said, when James says, in many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man. Perfect doesn't mean without sin. It doesn't mean without mistakes. Perfect there means spiritually mature. Here's a man, here's a woman who's got into a place in their, in their marriage, in their life, where they're just, they're mature. They're not, not perfect. They don't have weak moments. They just are working towards this idea of, I'm, I'm mature. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in control. And, and if you can control the tongue, if you can control your communication, the things that you say, then you have power to control the body and so many more things. He is asking us this. Give your best effort. Give your virtue. Give your strength. And apply it to the struggle that sometimes you might face. The expectations that have been let down. The frustrations and the turmoil you might experience. Marriage as a relationship will never make sense to any of us fully apart from the reality of heaven. Paul said, if our only hope is in this life, like if that's it, like this is where it ends, then we are of all men most miserable. But we have hope in heaven. So don't just live for today. And when things get difficult, Paul said, this is a light affliction because it's for a moment. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, those struggles are making me a better person. Yeah, this is difficult in this moment. And sometimes it's not so much my spouse, it's myself. And God says, right, so let's get better. Let's be a better person. Let's work through these things. You don't get to pick and choose the struggles that your marriage will face or your life will face for that matter. But we all have struggles. 
And the challenge is simply this tonight. Don't let the challenges you face in your marriage confine you. Don't let them limit you. Don't let them box you in. You look at a man like Abraham Lincoln, you think that really restrained him. Or did it release him? Did it make him better? And did we not maybe all benefit as a result? And maybe others would benefit from your best effort given to your marriage too. Let those things, let your hurt and your disappointments and your frustrations help you become a better person and the person that God is working on you uh, to become. Let me ask you to uh, just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Stand with me.